0: happy Memorial Day weekend. Hope you're having a good weekend so far. Take your Bibles and turn to First Corinthians 16. This is it. <clears throat> Number 48, if you were counting. It's been a good study. I, I've really enjoyed First Corinthians. And um, some people say, well, when you go through a book of the Bible like that, you're not going, you know, to the rest of the Bible. But if you think about it, uh, we were all over Scripture in First Corinthians. And and all scriptures related, and that's that's the way that we should preach, uh, bringing in scripture and explaining passages by other scripture. And it, it's been very good, in a sense. Even though we're going through a book, the way Paul wrote it, it's very much, very much topical-driven as you go through it. Many different topics, and it was a, a wonderful time. And there's a part of me that wishes that this book ended at chapter 15, right? It sort of ends with a soaring (laughs) moment of glory. You know, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And it's fantastic. And all of a sudden, you get to chapter 16, and it's, uh, be sure to take up a collection. Well, what's up with that, right? Here are my travel plans. But um, actually, when you think about it, what we did, what Paul did is he, he went out to the glories that are to come and then say, okay, let's come back to reality once again and um, kind of landed a little bit hard with a, a bit of the mundane and um, we've been soaring very high on the resurrection, but we need to get back to reality and, and um, we can contemplate the glories of the resurrection as we go to work. And that's, that's a good way to end because we don't live in the glories to come, do we? Uh, we live in the mundane here and now, you know. Morning's getting up and and making that daily decision to read your Bible and, or not to read your Bible. The the um, the the decisions that we have to make whether or not we're going to actively love another person or not love another person. We're going to be selfish or not be selfish. We're going to do this or do that, and that's the mundane things that the day to day. And so we need to we need help to see how the glory awaits us, and how it affects the way that we live in the day-to-day realities of this life. And so, as we think about chapter 16, we're going to read it, the whole chapter together in just a moment. But um, we're thinking about living the Christian life in the real world. In particular, in fellowship with the the, uh, local church. And so, as we read this, we'll see four themes. Let's stand together and we'll read chapter number 16 together. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you just now, uh, I'm sorry, I, for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? For a wide door for effective work has been opened to me. There are many adversaries. And when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. For he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me. For I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers. But it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in the Ki, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus, because they have made up uh, for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. We won't do that today. I, Paul write this greeting with my own hand if anyone has no love for the lord let him be accursed our lord come the grace of the lord jesus be with you my love be with you all in christ jesus amen our heavenly father we thank you for the word of god it's been a a wonderful journey through difficult topics uh, through very um, uh, timely topics as well lord and then Uh, we've seen the glories of the church we've seen the glories of christ we've seen the glories of the resurrection and now as we finish up today i pray that you will impress upon our hearts these last uh commands and instructions from the apostle paul that we will follow them lord because this is your will for every believer in christ's name we pray amen thank you so much so we saw four topics in there i don't know if you're able to pick them out Uh, but uh Uh, The first thing we see is a topic of money, right? Money and the church of God. Paul opens in, in chapter number 16 with these words, now concerning the collection for the saints. If you remember, when you see these words, now concerning, you know that this is something that they're asking clarification for. You go back through 1 Corinthians and you can see all the times that he says now concerning. He's answering a question that they have had. He's previously given instruction about this collection, and verse number three tells us it is a collection for the saints in Jerusalem. Now, why? Well, in Acts eleven twenty-eight, the church in Antioch, and if you remember, Paul was in Antioch, right? The church in Antioch had a prophet named Agabus who prophesied that famine would hit Judea, and it became Paul's custom in all of his churches to uh, continue that pattern. And so he tells us here in verse number one that he gave the same instruction to the churches in Achaia or Galatia. In 2 Corinthians chapter number eight, we are told that the churches in Macedonia participated. And in Philippians chapter four verses uh, 17 and 18, those verses tell us that the churches Uh, Macedonia had been participating since the get-go and they hadn't stopped. They were continuing in in this. And they were not only sending relief to the saints in Judea, but they're also, these churches in Macedonia, uh, sustaining the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So I want you to notice three things about this giving that was going on that was well known throughout all the New Testament churches. What is the, the, the pattern? Well, the pattern is That it was across all the congregations. It was a pattern for the Corinthians, for the Galatians, for the churches at Macedonia. It was a pattern at Antioch. The churches together are sharing and bearing one another's burdens. Isn't that wonderful? The churches of the New Testament were not radically independent congregations, but they shared a common mission and we're participating together in common relief, so, uh, supporting one another under common leadership in governance and in structure. And so the, the strong are helping the weak. The, the churches are mutually connected in love and a common mission under commonly recognized leadership. And so there's a pattern, and this is normative for all the churches. And I get all the time people ask me, why do we support foreign missions? We have so many problems here. Well, this is one of the reasons why. This is the pattern of the church. All the churches were helping one another out. And by all standards, churches in the United States are very wealthy churches, and we can help out all over the world, can't we? Yes, we have problems here. But there are, there are churches that need help all over the world. Secondly, not only is it a pattern across the congregation, but it's to be planned. Look at verse number 2. He says, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up and there so that there will be no collecting when I come. The first day of the week. And we understand that, right? This is the first day of the week. This Since the day of Jesus' resurrection, since the day that he came and stood in that upper room with all the saints, the disciples, who were gathered with the doors closed for fear of the Jews, On that first Easter Sunday night, since then, the first day of the week, has been the Christian assembly together for worship. And it it continued that pattern. John said, I I saw the Lord, I was in, in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, right? The first day of the week. And so Sunday, the first day of the week, is a day of Christian assembly for worship. It is to be a day upon which the Christians support For the saints they give their support for the saints the relief of the poor for the cause of the gospel it's a normal practice and this is the new testament standard and then the third thing that we see in verse number two is to be proportional on the first day of the week each of you is to put aside something and store it as um, he may prosper so there you are it's planned it's it's uh, proportional and it's it's the pattern across all the congregations. This is not, by the way, this is not a tithe. The tithe is only 10%. The New Testament calls for radical generosity. I, I took out almost a whole page of my sermon explaining how much more the New Testament uh, giving, uh, much more the Jews gave than 10% and how much more radical New Testament giving should be but the Jews actually gave upwards of twenty-three percent of their of their um, of their yearly income to help out within the temple and the tabernacle, and we're to, to give as Christ has prospered us. The New Testament principle Paul says is this: in Second Corinthians eight nine, we begin by looking at Christ, who though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor, that by his poverty. We might become rich. Same pattern holds for us. We uh, look to Jesus and what he has done for us, and what do we say? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present, what? Far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life my all, right? We cannot pay the Lord back for what he's done for us, but we can give in proportion to what he's given to us. We, we um, give not only from our resources, but we give our very selves with nothing held back. We give our time. We give our energy. All of it is his who gave his all for us. And so radical and costly sacrificial generosity. So we're, so that, and it's to the point where we're not asking this question. We're not asking, what's the minimum I may legitimately give? We're asking rather, how may I give in such a way that reflects my devotion to my Savior who gave it all for me? That's a radically different question, isn't it? I I don't think that Paul had any kind of percentage in mind. I think instead what he meant to say was, hey, take a good, honest look at the way God has prospered you and see how much he has blessed you. Think about the number of times you've eaten out, that Netflix subscription, the shoes you wear, the clothes you've purchased, the food on your table, Think about the luxuries that you enjoy. Think of the abundance that the Lord has lavished upon us. His kindness and the prosperity that you enjoy. And then ask yourself this question. Ask yourself whether your own pleasures have a higher claim on your money than the cause of Jesus Christ. Do your own pleasures have a higher claim on your resources than the cause of the Savior who you profess love to? and follow and serve? Would somebody looking at your bank account conclude that Jesus Christ has first place in your life and in your heart? And so Paul gives us a word here, He doesn't he? It's an exhortation about giving in the church of God, but he continues. And he, he talks about our mission in the plan of God. That's the second thing that we see here, verses five to nine. There's a balance here that I want us to be sure that we observe. On the one hand, He he exhorts us about giving, doesn't he? That we need to be absolutely generous in our giving. The church needs resources. There's gospel work to be funded. There's mercy to be provided. And so we need those resources. Without it, we can't do it. That's the one part of this. But on the other, he wants to show us that the work of God belongs to God himself. Right? Right? There's, there's th- Have you ever thought, I mean, this, this thought hits me every single Sunday morning. There is no leverage that we can apply to make the church grow. There, there's no leverage that we can pl- apply to see sinners saved. Or we can't even cause a soul to inch one inch further away from hell and one inch closer to heaven. We can't do any of that salvation belongs to the Lord. And that's a magnificent balance that's so important for us to understand. And so look at verses five to nine. We get Paul's travels plans here in five to nine. He says, look, I'm I'm planning to see you. I'm planning to travel over, but I'm gonna go through Macedonia if I can. And I'd love to come spend the winter with you, but I just don't wanna pay you a fleeting visit. I wanna spend some quality time with you because I care about you he says. As I write this, though, um, I, I'm planning to stay until Pentecost. But right now, I'm in Ephesus. Why? Why? Because a wide door for effective work has been opened to me. And so we take that in, we get a little glimpse of Paul's missionary plans. But notice, as, as we look at the summary of his intentions." These little notes, an acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God. He says, the, you know, the Lord is king even over the apostles' plans. So in verse number seven, he says, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Verse number nine, A wide door for effective ministry has been opened to me, but he says this, There are many adversaries. Paul didn't open the door, did he? Revelation Makes it very clear, Uh, Jesus said, I'm the one who opens the door. I'm the one who closes the door. And the door's open. The Ephesians didn't open the door. In fact, there are so many who opposed him in Ephesus trying to slam the door in his face. That woke some of you up. (laughs) Um, And he said, But God has opened a wide door for effective ministry. It's God who opens the door. It doesn't matter who's against us. Isn't that wonderful? What's the message? It's it's not hard to see. The message is salvation belongs to the Lord. And the cause and the advancement of the Lord's work and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ belongs in His hands and His hands alone. And we shouldn't think that any of the usual metrics commonly employed to measure success are going to work. You know the usual metrics, don't you? The, the three B's, you know them? Bodies, buildings, and bucks, you've heard those metrics? Okay, we shouldn't think about the, the usual metrics, bodies, buildings, and bucks, as any guarantee of gospel success in the mission of God. It's, it's not. You know what it is instead? If God permits that's what it is. Or only if there's a great door of effective ministry open to me. That's that's what we're looking for. God must save. God must add daily to the church those who are being saved. God must open the door. And so we need to cry to the Lord mightily and open to open the door for his word in Culpeper, Virginia, and around the world. My desire is that we become Such a corporate praying church coming in here on Wednesday nights, gathering together in our small groups, crying out to the Lord, Lord, open the door for effective ministry in Culpeper, Virginia, for Providence Bible Church and other churches. Open the door for ministry around the world. I just read a note from a missionary that um, our former church supports in, in northern Manitoba, Canada remote Indian reservation, and they are under such oppression from government, from demonic oppression, and everything else. And just praying with those, those missionaries, don't let, allow them to be discouraged, and open the door for ministry. And so, there's so much to pray for. We shouldn't rest secure if we have more money than we need. It's not money that leverages success, but the sovereign will and purpose of the living God. And we shouldn't panic if if as a church we have less than we had hoped financially because salvation belongs to the Lord. It's His work and we are in His hands. Money in the church of God, mission in the plan of God, and ministry in the servants of God. And, and we see this all the time. Here's another continuation of the pattern of how uh, God turns things on their head, and it's the opposite of the way we think. Look at verses 10 to 18 with me, and just keep in mind how Paul began his letter. If you remember, the opening chapters are largely taken up with Paul trying to help the uh, Corinthians pass their, their arrogant, prideful, boastful, divisive uh, spiritness uh, when they were saying, I follow Paul, and I follow Paulus, and I follow Peter, and then the real Pharisees just said, well, I only follow Christ. You know, those guys, they always have to one-up you, right? You remember they were saying all that. They were trying to claim some of the glory attached that attached itself to the celebrity and lend credence to their own personal piety. They're, they're, it was schismatic, these little groups that they were following And that's how they were looking at the leadership. Oh, man, when Apollos was here, things were so great. Oh, man, when Peter was here, we were walking the straight and narrow. Do you remember those pioneering days when Paul was here? And and they all had their factions. And Paul said, Paul is teaching here, I should say, rather, a different model of leadership, completely different. He offers a different model of leadership. He commends the leaders to them but for very different reasons, not because they were uh, impressive or dramatic or charismatic or powerful personalities, not because of the force of their rhetoric or their imposing demeanor, but for very different le- uh, reasons. The leaders Paul urges the Corinthians to care for and help and honor, submit and recognize are men like Timothy. In verse number 10, he said, "Look at it. He says, "Help him. Help your leader." He says, don't look down upon him, don't despise him, help him, because why? Verse number 10, he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. Men like Apollos in verse number 12, whom he describes as our brother. Just like the Corinthians themselves in verse number 15 are brothers. Apollos is a brother among the brothers. These leaders, he says, they devote themselves to the service of the saints. They are fellow workers and laborers. And it's, it's not glamorous. There's no prestige. I've, I've told you this before, and I, I tell you half-jokingly, but it's absolutely true. If I want to shut down a conversation with somebody I don't know, all that has to happen is when they ask me what I do, I say I'm a pastor. It shuts it down. Because pastors have no uh, prestige in our culture whatsoever, right? It's not a prestigious job. They're just laborers. They're, they're not known for their power, for their insight, for their brilliance, their strategic brilliance. You know, I didn't walk in here saying, hey, Providence Bible Church, follow my brilliant plan as your leader, right? It's not the job, I'm a shepherd, and shepherding is a thankless job in many, in many regards. They're singled out because they're servants. Like the household of Stephanus in verses 15 and 16, men like Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus who are to receive recognition of the church not because they're great, but because they're lowly, not because they're mighty, but because they're servants. And you know what? That is completely opposite of the world's values. Isn't it? They aren't the values of the world at all. That's not usually how we identify leaders, people we want to follow or emulate. You remember when uh, think about this. You remember the prophet Samuel when God told him to go to Jesse's house and, uh, and anoint the new king for Israel? And Eliab, the firstborn, steps uh, forward, and Samuel's impressed. He's thinking to himself, just look at that guy. He's, he's surely the Lord's anointed. I mean, after all, he's the complete package. He's powerful and impressive and articulate this has got to be it. You remember what the Lord said to Samuel? Do not look on the outside. Don't look on his appearance. Don't look on his height, because the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord sees man. The Lord sees inside. And so each of the sons are paraded out in front of Samuel, and and none of them is chosen. And of course, poor poor David, he's he's. Uh, utterly ruled out because he's out in the field shepherding the sheep, the lowliest job in the family, shepherding the sheep. And uh, he's too young. He's insignificant. He's a shepherd out in the fields. He could never be king. When at last he's called, the Lord told Samuel, said, Arise and anoint him as king, for it is he. And the Lord's uh, judgment of leadership is, is completely opposite the world the world's. That's how God works. It's not the great and good, it's not the sophisticated and the powerful, but it's the servant. It's the least of these. Give recognition to these men. Follow these men. Help them on their way. Submit to them. Be subject to them. And and think about this. The reason God does that is because his strength is made perfect in our weakness. Right? And if you, if I, I could basically say I'm looking at a bunch of weaklings, right, right? Because God's power is made complete in your weakness and in my weakness. That's the way God works. And that is why the world looks at the church, and and by the way, the average church in the United States is roughly about 75 people. And they look at these churches and they say they're small, they're insignificant, they're plain people. They, the none of them graduated from Harvard or Yale or any of this sort of stuff. And guess what? God says, those are my people because through my people, I'm going to get my glory. That is so wonderful, isn't it? Would you pray for ministers? Would you pray for your pastors? Would you pray for your elders and your deacons that the Lord would save us from the allure of the praise of men you know, from the counterfeit paradigm of leadership that the world provides, that he would make us servants of all, fellow workers, brothers among brothers, laboring for your good. Would you pray that for us? We, we need one another. We're to live out the Christian life in the context of the family of the people of God. And so then, if you look at, um, if, you, if you looked in at, um, the next point, in verses 19 to 24, he says this. He says, maturity and the family of God. And here I want you to, to look in two places. We're going to see verses 13 and 14, and then we're going to see verses 19 to 24. And he gives us some very practical and easy-to-understand instructions for maturity and Christian fidelity on an individual level. In verses 13 to 14, he says this. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. And so you notice that. Be watchful. Vigilance. It's actually a recurring theme throughout the New Testament when it gives practical instruction on living the Christian life. There is no slumbering at your post in the Christian life. We need to be vigilant. Temptation is real, isn't it? The enemy is real. The flesh is weak. And though the spirit may be willing, and we need to stay alert. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Spiritual wickedness in high places. And that's not talking about human government. Although that's the part of the instrumentation, isn't it? We're talking about spiritual wickedness in high places. It's talking about angelic, demonic wickedness. And it's all around us. And so he says, be vigilant. He also says, stand firm in the faith. The faith. What is is the faith? The faith is the body of apostolic doctrine, of apostolic teaching contained in scriptures. He wants us to remain immovably fixed upon the rock of biblical truth. We, We are to care about doctrine. We are to care about orthodoxy. And then he says, what? Act like men. Man up. Put your big boy pants on. March into the fray. You're going to need some courage. It's going to be hard. The Christian life is going to be painful and costly. And we're going to find out more and more and more about that as time goes along. We've had it easy in the United States. It's no longer the case. And so we need to be ready for it. Stand firm and be strong. And then he gives us this wonderful balancing note, doesn't he? You see, here's what true manhood actually looks like. Biblically speaking, you act like men. Be strong and then let all that you do be done in love. And so let love animate your every action. Let love be the characteristic mark of everything you do. In all that you do in the service of your master, may you be a man and a woman marked and distinguished by your love. You remember the verse: "For all, for by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another." And so we're not squishy, we're not passive, we're not uh, a milk toast, but rather we are men and women with a backbone. Who stand up for what is right, but we also love at the same time. And it's possible to do both, isn't it? In fact, that's the most loving thing that we can do. And so, note here uh, in verses 19 through 24 that you, you actually have a, a note of love that sounds again and again and again with clarity. Look at, look at these verses. He says, The churches of Asia send greetings, Aquila and Prisca together with the church in their house send greetings greet one another with a holy kiss this is a family they they love each other you see the same note in verse 24 from the apostle himself he says my love be with all of you in, in Christ Jesus they cared deeply about one another you know we we need each other don't we We do. I I cannot tell you how many times over the the course of my ministry that a brother or sister came with encouragement at just the right time, not knowing anything going on. We need each other. We've got to trust each other, don't we? I mean, if if you can't trust people in the church, why are you in that church? Either the problem is with the church or the problem is with you. Because love and trust go together. Let one another in. Learn to love one another. And so, so Christian maturity is a group project. You can't do it on your own. You can't use the church as an occasional provider of Christian services, Christian goods. I gave my time. Um, now I better not say that. So I just... You know how I think the whole sermon out, I write the whole sermon down, and then I have this thing that pops in my head, and a lot of times I say it, and that's where I always get in trouble, and I'll get in trouble if I say this. So I'm gonna, we're going to move right along. So This is a place where these people among whom you're called to live and serve with them together, you will grow as we learn to love, and love is important. Let me tell you something. We're all a bit prickly from time to time, aren't we? We're all a bit hard to understand. We're all a bit abrasive. Did I catch everything with everybody? And so that's how we have to learn to love. We learn to love. We choose to love. Hannah had to choose to learn to love me this morning. I was teasing her about the Steelers this morning. And um, I think she loves me, but I'm not real sure. So I think so but we learn to love one another don't we in in verse number 22 the apostle when he writes this little postscript look at what he says he says if anyone has no love for the lord let him be accursed our lord come he's coming he's 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 be warned a loveless heart faces the judgment of god you can't say that you love jesus and hate your brother the truth isn't in you if that's the case we must learn first to meld love for the Savior who loved us and gave himself for us, and then we begin to love him. As we begin to love him, we turn to love those whom he loved, the people of God. I love the people of God. I, lo- I love talking to other believers. I love talking to the people in my church, you people. I know you're not supposed to use that phrase anymore, right, you people? You're my people. You're, you're, we're, we're a body. I love talking to you. I love learning about you. I love praying for you. And I think it's beautiful to notice that the very last words in which this letter uh, concludes, they're the same words in which the letter begins. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, called to be saints, sanctified in Christ Jesus, and now he concludes, my love be with you all in Jesus Christ. Because if there's one thing... We must be sure that we don't walk away from, in 1 Corinthians, without grasping clearly, it's, it's this, that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Right? We can't walk away from 1 Corinthians without thinking about that. We can't ever hope to be radically generous and sacrificial without seeing what christ has done in his generosity right his self-giving love for us we can't hope to be faithful in the mission to which he's called us without knowing that christ has purchased for himself a people from every tribe and language and nation and we can't hope to be servant-hearted ministers in the service of, co- of the cause of christ without seeing jesus himself as a great paradigm for the suffering servant and we can never hope for Christian maturity unless we seek to be watchful and stand firm and act like men and be strong and love one another. And we do it clinging to and resting on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let me plead with you as we close First Corinthians, and this is it, to make certain of this one issue, are you clinging to Christ? he's all you need he's all your heart needs cling to christ lord i thank you so much for these last instructions and more than that we thank you for christ we thank you that christ gave it all he's the paradigm the pattern for our our Christian ministry. He's a, a pattern for how we give. He's a pattern how we stand firm. He's a pattern of how we serve. He's a pattern to how we love, Lord. And so I pray that we will pattern our life after the Lord Jesus Christ, so that not so that we can get glory, not so that our church's name can get glory, but so that Christ himself can get glory for what he's done in our hearts. In his name we pray, amen.